Hey, welcome to Lakeview Sermon of the Week. We're so grateful to have you here, and we hope you enjoyed today's message. Well, welcome home. I'm uh, having you over for dinner. <laughs> uh, the plates are empty, but if you've ever watched Hook, you just use your imagination and uh, you'll be filled. <laughs> oh, man. Love you guys. Um, we're approaching the holidays, and, and this week, last week, rather, we had our, our conference, and it was really instrumental in shaping um, the series that we're going to be doing for the next few weeks. Um, as we begin to approach Thanksgiving and Christmas, we're going to begin to be at tables with family. And as we are at tables with family, I don't want us to miss the opportunity uh, to miss out on the importance of what God might have at those tables. And because how many of you know, sometimes family's just family. <laughs> Can I get amen? You know what I'm talking about? And it's like, can I get this over with? Do I have an appointment that I can leave early and use to? And, and I really want us to lean into these holidays this year because I, I really feel like it's going to be a time for you to be a witness. And I believe that the Lord is going to begin to put glory on your face and glory on your life that's going to make a difference this year. And so I don't want you to waste the opportunity. Um, so we're going to be kind of leaning into this series, um, and we're going to call it A Seat at the Table. And I want you to know who you are in the Lord so that when you're at any table, you can be secure enough and be healed enough to help be a, a healer for other people, right? Because at the end of the day, we're called to be witnesses. Like, that's what you're called to be. At the end of the day, we are to be witnesses to the goodness and the glory of God. But I want to take the pressure off of you and let you know that you can be a witness without being a crazy radical. <laughs> like, <laughs> right? Like, like I just want I just wanted you to get the idea and, and to understand maybe some some of the heart. And so. Um, so as we look at this, we're going to be looking at a story. It's going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 9. So if you, if you got your Bible uh, or whatever you have, you got your phone, just whatever you've got, open it up and let's get into it. 2 Samuel chapter 9. And I just want to kind of set up a little bit so that we kind of understand the, the king's heart for us. Um, we start when uh, Israel is crying out for a king and a certain king gets anointed by the name of King Saul. And King Saul is head and shoulders above the rest. I think King Saul meant well. I think he had a really good start. Uh, but just like anybody, it doesn't matter how you start, it matters how you finish. Amen. 
And so there's a stick to that we've got to learn as the people of God that we don't let our past designate our future or uh, push us into a destiny that's counter to the Lord's, but that we can stop right now in our tracks and begin to lay new foundations and begin to lay new roads and begin to make new decisions that would begin to change the future and change the destiny um, of our lives. I love what James says, the father of lights, all the good and perfect gifts come from the father of lights. Why is he saying that? He's saying that because he doesn't want you to think that your fate is set in the stars. He's saying that there's actually a father that is above those lights that is actually orchestrating the human history and everything in the universe. And when you begin to align yourself with him, suddenly all things are possible and your destiny can change. God is greater than your DNA. He's greater than your mindsets. He's greater than everything that's got you stuck where you're at right now. And so God would say, don't get locked in to the way it was, but would you be open to me in any way and be led by my spirit and be open to a big possibility of the future and a big impact that every single one of us can make? See, some of you have given up on your dreams and you've thrown money at other people's thinking you don't have any more. I want, you to, I want you to do this. It's okay to throw money at other people's dreams, but don't lose your own. Don't lose your own. And that's what the devil wants to do. The devil wants to position you in a place to where you feel like you can't change the circumstances that you're in. And so you begin to settle in every area of your life. And anytime you settle, that's the results you get. So I just want you to kind of lift the bar. So this Saul had started strong, but then he began to make compromises. And this is the key. If you, if you really want to make kingdom impact, you have to be rid of all the compromises. You have to quit talking yourself into things that are good, but not God. Because some things are good, but it might not necessarily be something that God is in. And so King Saul has this strong start, and, and, and he looks like a flash in the pan when you read about him in Scripture. But do you know that King Saul reigned for 42 years? 42 years. But when you read it, it looks like a blip. Why? Because it's not about how long you have power. It's about the impactfulness and where you're at is with partnering with the Lord and being led by him and walking in relationship with him. You can have be in charge for a long time, but everything be crumbling around you. So it's not necessarily about the position as much as it is the relationship that you're walking in with the Lord. Because we think, Power is going to come from a position. It's never come from a position when it comes to the kingdom of God. It's always come from those nobodies from nowhere that know how to get a hold of the Lord and begin to press into him and do really crazy things led by his spirit. Like that's what God is asking us to do. And so King Saul begins to make some compromises. And so he begins to compromise the voice of the Lord and the obedience of that voice in his life. 
And when King Saul is told by the Lord that I need you to destroy the Amalekites because they're going to be an enemy to you for forever. And it's kind of tricky, right? Because the Bible puts us in these kind of strange positions because he's really asking sinful people to be his instrument of justice on sinful people. (laughs) It's complicated, right? Like we can gloss over it and make it look like Israel's perfect and nobody else is, but that's not the case. The case is the Lord told them to do it and that's what they were supposed to do. So King Saul begins to conquer the Amalekites. God gives him the victory, but he begins to notice, man, they got some really fat sheep. (laughs) You know what? They got a lot of wealth too. And so he begins to compromise the obedience of the Lord and begins to make a compromises in something that would seem to be good, but was opposite of what God said. And so we got to learn how to not operate in the mindset of the fallen nature, which is what the grid is, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Because if we operate from that grid, we'll talk ourselves into good things that are actually evil. And why are they evil? Because God didn't say it. (laughs) God didn't say it. So we can't look through that grid. So Saul begins to look through the fallen grid of what is good and what's evil, and he tries to gloss it over like it's this merciful thing. So Samuel, the seer, or the prophet of the nation, comes into town, and he meets Saul, and he's like, what's going on here? He's like, I'm hearing sheep in the background. We're not supposed to have anything left in this battle. And I'm hearing sheep. Saul says, well, you know, hey, look, these could be great offerings for the Lord. This could be, you know, we could use this for things. But that isn't what God said. (laughs) And so Samuel at that moment says, look, I'm pulling away. God's pulling away. And you've been handed over. And the days of your kingdom are going to be numbered. And God's going to begin to anoint somebody else. You say, man, that just seems harsh. Would maybe it be like this. Somebody's about to go to the electric chair and you've got to pull the switch and you empty their pockets out and fill yours. See, when it comes to justice, there can't be any exchange of money. There can't be an exchange of a compromise. And this is what had happened. And God says, if you won't listen to me there, where else will you not listen to me? So Saul would seem to be merciful because he spared the king and he spared the sheep. But if you fast forward the tape a little bit, guess when Saul completely massacres a whole people? When he finds out the priests of Nob were protecting David and gave him provision. So the man that postured as if I'm trying to be more moral than the Lord is the same one that destroys all the priests because they helped David, the one in whom God was anointing. And this happens all the time. That an eagle egg has more rights than an embryo. And people will tie themselves to a tree (laughs) 
See, it looks merciful, but the idea is that it's cruelty because it actually devalues the thing that God has put as premier and preeminent. So that's why we can't compromise. Because when you compromise, you lose the heart of the Lord. He's saying, well, God, that's going to be harsh if I walk away from that relationship. Yeah, but you're going to lose your heart if you don't. God, God, if I step away from this issue, I'll lose some of my identity. Yeah, but I need you to lose some of that identity because there's a part of you that I can't touch yet. And if you'll quit compromising and get violent about the things that are separating me from you, if you'll quit looking within yourself for some kind of moral purity and you'll just run headlong into me, I will give you my righteousness and my rest and my peace and my power and my anointing. But we're trying to look within ourselves to conjure something up and get advice. Follow your heart. No, follow God's heart, man. Follow the king's heart. Even when it doesn't make sense. So Saul's days were numbered. But there was another young man that was in a field. (laughs) He was a shepherd boy. And his name was David. And so Samuel's told that there's a man by the name of Jesse who has a son, and I'm going to anoint him as king. And so when Samuel shows up and Jesse brings out his son, he brings out seven sons, but somehow David doesn't get the memo. (laughs) Or then I got to thinking about it. Maybe David did get the memo. But he wasn't worried about a position. He was worried about the responsibility of where God put him at the time. That David's highest aspiration wasn't to be a king, but it was to have the heart of the king of Israel, Yahweh. So they go through and he's not it, he's not it, he's not it, he's not it. How would you like to be one of those sons? You show up for the anointing party. Ah, then you're hoping it's not your brother. (laughs) But that's why you wouldn't be anointed because you cared who was anointed. (laughs) So David could be in the sheepfold and be content there or content to be at the anointing party. See, David was content to go or stay. That David wasn't ruled by positions and power. He was ruled by the voice of the Lord. And this is the place that we need to get to as the people of God is that we're not moved by promotions or by blessings or by this or that circumstance. But we are leaned in to the voice of the Lord and we say, God, what are you saying in this time? God, what do do you want? And so I believe David was so caught up in the task that God had given him. And he was so caught up in his time with the Lord. Just picture this scenario. David's watching the sheep and he's beginning to write beautiful psalms. (laughs) 
And then uh, here comes Jesse's servants or the household, and they're tapping him on the shoulder. Hey, uh, the prophet's in town. They're anointing a new king. They want you in there. Oh, hold on one second. I got one more bridge. I got one more bridge that I got to give God some more worship <laughs> before, before I move on to the next thing here. It's like David is just so locked in as a young man. And I just want to tell anybody in here that's a young person, man, you can be locked in. You don't have to waste your teenage years experimenting on what the world has to offer. You can take the advice of those who've gone before and just go all in with the Lord and have no wasted years in your life. That would be great. But some of you might be hard-headed like me and you just have to learn the hard way. God will take you that route too. But you don't have to go that way. You just don't. So David gets asked to come and he goes in and he is the one that's anointed. The smallest, the runt, the litter. But what they don't know is, is that in the secret place, David had already killed a lion and killed a bear and didn't have to tell everybody about it. See, there's something about when you're locked in with the Lord and you've had private victories with him that other people don't have to know about those victories, that God will promote you and everybody be wondering, why did that guy get the promotion? Well, he won some secret battles that nobody knows about <laughs> and he was content to keep winning those battles until it was God's time to promote him. See, some of us need to trust the anointing on our life and quit trusting the connections and relationships that we have with other people. Some of us think if we can just network and meet enough people that we're gonna make it, I'm gonna tell you that's a lie from the enemy that you don't need to make more connections. Yeah, that's great to make friendships and stuff. I love making friends. But at the end of the day, it's gonna be the Lord who promotes. It's gonna be the Lord who exalts. And if I'll humble myself and I'll keep staying in the secret place with him and I'll keep serving him, the Lord will lift me up when the time is right. That you don't have to try to manipulate and maneuver all these things. The Bible says that your gift will make room for you. And what the devil wants you to do is operate in fear and begin to try to figure out how you can manipulate things to get your way. And when you begin to do that, you're not operating according to the spirit of God, you're operating according to the flesh. You're operating according to a man-pleasing principle and you're gonna make man your God and you're gonna lose the fear of the Lord and you're gonna miss out on the big things God has for you. Keep being faithful in the secret place and know that he sees that he sees, and God keeps a really good record. He's got a book, and he's writing it all the time of everything that we're experiencing and that we're going through. He keeps a journal. He bottles up every tear, the psalmist tells us, that he bottles every single tear, and he numbers our journeys. What does that tell us? That tells us that God has his eye on us and that everywhere we go, he's watching you. And in an age with clicks and views and likes and viral, that stuff's okay, but you got to know in your heart, the king sees, the king sees, and that's what counts. That's what counts. And so David had kind of worked this out. So David gets anointed king, but David doesn't go from anointed king right to king. Saul was anointed king and went right to being the king. David gets anointed king and goes right into process. <laughs> It's like, all right, here's how you can do it. You can uh, be anointed and go right in, 
or I can anoint you, show you the promise, and then begin to subject you to this place of process that's going to build the character to where you won't be a flash in the pan, but you'll actually be a leader that has my heart. And so this is the reality that David walks into. He gets anointed king and is not king until 12 to 18 years later. So he went from anointing right into process, and guess what? The one who is king wants to kill him. That David shows up to a battle, and he's not even there to fight. He's hauling cheese to his brothers and the general and the king, Saul. So here he is carrying a, riding in on a donkey with provision for the soldiers. Little did they know the king was coming to the battlefield who had the anointing to defeat the giant. And so he's coming in there, and the dad, Jesse's probably sending him because he says, man, if I can give them some, give the king some good, uh, good eats here, they'll probably allow my sons to not be in the front lines of battle and put them in a better position. So David is even potentially on this mission of manipulation. <laughs> like, he's just like, all right, dad, but he's just willing to do whatever he's asked to do. And so when they go in and he says, what's going on here, guys? It's like, nobody's going to fight the giant? He's defiling the name of the Lord. Is somebody going to step up? And his zeal for obedience put him in a position to be hated by his peers. And, and, and this is what happens is people want you, they love it when your life gets together. <laughs> They love it when you serve the Lord and you start to clean some rough edges up around yourself. They love that you're dependable and can be counted on. But don't go too far with Jesus <laughs> or you're gonna be one of those people. And so David's like, man, what's going on here? So, so he goes out and he defeats this giant and, and he immediately gets promoted from his victory over this giant. And then something dire begins to happen. The insecure leader, Saul, can't take it that his fame starts to begin to wane, begins to wax. And the Jerusalem top 40 sung by all the girls, all the virgins of Israel are singing, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And then jealousy begins to evoke. So David's dodging spears and jumping out of windows but all that is, is an environment to show us what was really in David's heart. That David didn't return fire with fire. He trusted the anointing and the word of God that was on his life and wouldn't result to the ways of the flesh in order to stretch out his hand against a leader who had lost his way. And so the king, anointed king of Israel is now on the run in his own hometown <laughs> and gets ran out of the place that he was king of. 
It's kind of making some correlations with Jesus here, aren't we? We're kind of seeing the path of David and the greater David that was to come. So David pursues the Lord and the Lord works out the battles. And remember Saul who was supposed to conquer all the Amalekites? He loses in battle and guess who's standing over him according to scripture? When he falls in battle and Amalekite is standing over him. I want you to understand something. That which you refuse to get rid of can be standing over you in victory if you don't deal with it. So David immediately comes into kingship. And while he's at, in his throne and on his table, he's has a moment that, that strikes him. Because here's what happens. Most of the time, uh, when someone gets power, the power doesn't corrupt people. Power just reveals what was already in people. We've got to realize that. That power is revealing. And so when David steps into power, he has this moment when he's got total control. I mean, he can snap his fingers and armies could flee. He can make a decree and, and, and it's written and it's law. I mean, it just whatever spills out of his mouth is reality. And he's at the dinner table one day. And I want you to see the thought that he's struck with. When power hits his soul, what is he going to do with it? And that's what you've all got to decide is, is when you get into the place that you're trying to get to, that you're clawing and scraping and, 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 and doing whatever it takes to get into this place where you feel like if I get there, I will have made it. And I want to tell you something, when you get there, it will not be near as good as Jesus. I can just tell you. And David is at his table, and here is a feast fit for a king. And this is the thought that David gets when he comes into power. Second Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. Then David asked, is anyone still left from the family of Saul? so that I may extend kindness to him for the sake of Jonathan. Now remember, it was the house of Saul that had come against David. But when David sits down at his kingly table, the first impression he gets is, how can I bless those who were once my enemies. See, power reveals. And there's a moment in time where the king pushes the plate forward and is overcome by compassion. So much so that he's like, I can't eat. 
There's people that need to be at this table that are not at this table. And is there anybody I can share this table with? And so he lets out this crazy statement and everybody in the court and everybody that was serving him is probably thinking like, David, you made it. David, you're here. David, you... <laughs> Don't complicate matters by inviting somebody based on some short-term relationship that you had that went pretty good for you for a time but really didn't serve you in any kind of way. What are you doing? David, we're here. Don't make it complicated. But you know what I've found with our king? Our king likes to make it complicated. <laughs> we want to clean it up. <laughs> Black, white, got it. And then the king has got this kind of crazy way of thinking where he's like, what is it if you love those who are your friends? Wouldn't the real test be how you love your enemies? Well, God, if I love my enemies, they'll quit being my enemies. Bing! World peace. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, it's, like, it's like God is on this mission. That he's not on a mission of mercy, he's on a mission of grace. Because mercy is... Um, not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. <laughs> like mercy would be you committed a crime, but um, you, know, you don't get charged. Grace would be you committed the crime, but the judge moves you into his house and provides for you the rest of your life. That's why grace is scandalous. That's why it cuts against every fiber of our human being that says, I don't want to do that. <laughs> but that's what the Lord did. He took a people that were far off from God. And by his blood, he brought them near. That the Lord took the ones who tried to kill him those who hurled their sins into him. And he took those same ones and said, they're gonna be my people. They're gonna be my people. It's like, Lord, what are you doing? God, you've won. You've won. What are you trying to do? But see, when power hits the heart that's that benevolent and that glorious, it can't help but share it with other people. And that's what's in the heart of David. Verse two, now there was a servant from Saul's house named 
Ziba, and he was summoned to David. The king asked him, are you Ziba? And he answered, at your service. The king asked, is there not someone left from Saul's family that I may extend God's kindness to him? Ziba said to the king, one of Jonathan's son is left, and both of his feet are crippled. The king asked him, where is he? And Ziba told the king, he's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. So King David had brought him from the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed low with his face toward the ground. And David said, Mephibosheth, he replied, yes, at your service. David said to him, don't be afraid because I will certainly extend kindness to you for the sake of Jonathan, your father. And I will give back to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. And you will be a regular guest at my table. Then Mephibosheth bowed and said, of what importance am I, your servant, that you show regard for a dead dog like me. <laughs> Verse nine, the king summoned Ziba, Saul's attendant, and said to him, everything that belonged to Saul and to his entire house, I hereby give to your master's son. You will cultivate the land for him, you and your sons and your servants, and you will bring its produce, and it will be food for your master's grandson to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will be a regular guest at my table. Verse 11, Ziba said to the king, your servant will do everything that the Lord, the king, has instructed and his, instructed his servant to do. So Mephibosheth was a regular guest at David's table, just as though he were one of the king's sons. <laughs> Sounds like he got adopted. <laughs> Sounds like he got adopted by a king. And so I want you to picture this. Now Mephibosheth's backstory when Saul fell in haste, the attendance of Jonathan's family was holding Mephibosheth, and as they were trying to flee, not knowing what was going to happen from the battle lines that had been drawn around them, Mephibosheth was dropped. <laughs> that in haste, Mephibosheth was dropped by somebody else. And because of what somebody else did, he was crippled for the rest of his life. And he is now in a position to where he's going to have to be carried everywhere he's going to go. Anybody ever been carried in here? Some of y'all for the wrong reasons. I'm just going to say it right now. Some of y'all for the wrong reasons. So now this man named Mephibosheth is 
carried everywhere. He feels like he's lost control of his life. Because his whole life is going to be dependent upon the kindness of other people. But what Mephibosheth didn't know is that there was a king that was discontent at his table. There was a king full of grace, (laughs) full of mercy, that kept looking at an empty seat and wondering why it wasn't full. That when power hit the right king's heart, he couldn't stand that there was an empty spot at his table. So the king blurts out and says, there's a spot at this table, I've gotta show kindness. I need somebody to fill this spot. And so the king steps off of his throne and begins to find people that are really lame. I mean, look at this guy. (laughs) You know I got the microphone, I'm gonna mess with you. And the king begins to fill up the spots at the table. Because when power hits the right heart that's been cultivated by the grace of God, it's gotta share the grace. It's gotta share the grace. It can't be content with settling for somebody not being at that table. That the king is motivated not by what's convenient or what's profitable, but he's motivated by what can be shared. (laughs) That the king isn't worried that his belly is full. The king is more worried about if other people's belly is full. And that the king doesn't see his resources as adequate for himself to consume, but sees that the power that he's given has put him in a position to make sure that his resources are adequate for other people to consume. And that the king, what he's up to, ready, big reveal. Come on, you need something to eat, look at you. Look like you're going to blow away. (laughs) Feel like grandma right now. Feel like grandma. Somebody get the butter tubs out full of beans and different sides. Y'all don't, oh, y'all didn't grow up like I did. Okay. I see how it is. Y'all was too austere for that butter tub full of beans, huh? That the king... Got someone at his table 
that was obsessed with his condition. That there was no way to hide Mephibosheth's condition. And he's in a town called Lodabar. You know what Lodabar means? No word, no communication, and no pastor. Which means he had no shepherd. But the shepherd's got this thing about leaving 99 to go get one. He just got this weird thing like that. And so Mephibosheth, who was struck with his problem every time he looked down. But when he comes to the king's table, he doesn't look down and see the problem. He looks down and sees provision. He sees provision. So his legs, his feet that are crippled are now under a table. So he can't see his problem because the provision on the table is so great. It keeps him from looking within himself and looking within and always being focused on the pain that it takes his eyes off himself and he quits navel gazing and he starts looking up and seeing there is a king who loves me. There is a king who died for me. There's someone who's beginning to set a table for me and the provision is greater than the problem. The provision is greater than the problem. So you're going to be going back to, you're going to be sitting down with family and you're going to think, who am I? You think, I can't speak up. I've caused so many problems. (laughs) How can I be a witness? See what you're doing? You're looking at the problem. And the Lord says, don't look at the problem. I need you to look at the provision that I've made for you. That you have a seat at the king's table. That our father Adam was to rule, but he fell, so we fell. So we feel like a race of fallen princes and princesses. But Christ in his great mercy carried the fallen rulers and put us a seat at the table and made us sons and daughters. You wanna know what God's up to? That's what he's up to. Sometimes it don't feel like that. Sometimes it feels like we're isolated and crippled to do anything that he would have us to do. But God's not asking you to do anything in your own power. (laughs) He's asking you to do it from the place of his table with the power he provides and with the provision that he's made for you. Would you stand to your feet this time? God's setting a table. And so we're going to come to the Lord's table today and we're going to take communion together. And that communion, what it does so beautifully is it keeps us from focusing on ourselves and our problems. 
and it moves us into a position to where we begin to focus on the body and blood of Jesus that was provided for us by the King so that we can come to his table. Thanks for tuning in. Our hope is that these messages will help you on your journey of discovering who Christ is and who you are in him. You can learn more about our ministry at lvahs.org or follow us on Instagram at lakeview.hs.